0: The Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 138 and can be found on page 621 in your pew Bibles. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down towards your holy temple, and I will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted your solemn decree, that it surpasses your fame. When I call, you answered me with greatly emboldened me, May all the kings of earth praise you, Lord. When they hear what you have decreed, may they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the angers of my foes. With your right hand you save me. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands.
1: The New Testament reading is Colossians 2, verses 6 through 19, and can be found on page 1183 in your pew Bibles. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the workings of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us.
2: You should always check what version what translation the church is going to use oops uh dear people of sherwood street whether you're in the sanctuary or online it is good to be with you today and even better to be joining you as you walk through paul's letter to the colossians i will tell you in full candor that i did not expect to be preaching at a christian reformed church in the summer of the year of our lord 2022 especially after watching some choice snippets of your synod. If you needed a bit of incriminating evidence about my own fallibility, or maybe even a little sign that backs up that Reformed idea of depravity, that teaching that says there's nothing on this good earth that hasn't been marred by human error or grievous sin, all you have to do is to remember that I, not even a member of a Christian Reformed church, chose to watch the live stream of your synod. (laughs) So a few days after this sad happening, because didn't I have anything better to do, I got a message from one of your elders asking if I would join you in worship and preach. So here we are. And I have to laugh at God's twisted sense of humor, but I am glad to be here. It struck me as I was preparing for today that some of Paul's other letters were written to people very close to the center of power. Rome, for instance, was the seat of imperial grandeur. Ephesus was a cultural capital. Colossae was faded glory. Once a nexus of wealth, enriched by these huge flocks of sheep that grazed the nearby hills and supplied this uh, thriving wool industry, Colossae had become a bit of a backwater by Paul's time. I'm not sure what story the people of Colossae or the people of the Colossian church told themselves, but the truth is, whatever happened there, political scheming or theological jockeying, social drama or interpersonal conflict, it didn't matter much to the rest of the empire. Sure, if you watch a pair of fighting fish go at each other, In that one fishbowl, to the few people gathered around it, the conflict might matter. Outside of it, not really. Yet it mattered to Paul, our dear and human, complicated and pastoral Paul. Paul understood the power of doctrinal conflict to overshadow and even undermine the gospel of love. He got in his gut the ease with which a fragile family of faith can watch these cracks in unity grow into chasms. He cared about the health of even a small gathering of God's people in a seemingly unimportant city. He had profound personal experience with marginalization. He knew the righteous rush that one gets when one marginalizes, when one guards the gates. And he also felt the burn that one gets when you're marginalized and the shame of having those gates shut in your face. Paul also had some time on his hands, so while he was in prison, he wrote this letter to encourage the faithful in Colossae, to exhort them toward a deeper faithfulness. Paul's posture from the very start of this letter intrigues me. I promise I'm not going to exegete the whole book. Paul begins with gratitude. In our prayers for you, we always thank God He writes, just a couple lines in, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Let me be so bold as to echo Paul's sentiments for Colossae, except to turn those feelings to you. I am so thankful for how, especially recently, you have expressed love for all of God's beloved children and fidelity to your convictions about God's expansive embrace. You encourage me through your hard-won witness, and you're welcome. I thank God for you, for your faith in Christ Jesus, and for the love that you have for all the saints. Paul also immediately seeks to connect the believers in Colossae with their siblings beyond, reminding them that they're not alone in cultivating hope and proclaiming good news. Just as the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, he writes, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves. From a distance, I have seen this in you as well. And today I get to emulate Paul's move in this regard too. Though there are particularities to your story together and your stories individually, strands of those stories are interwoven with the propagation of love and the stewardship of the good news and indeed the challenge of doing those things throughout your denomination and the broader church and a world that cries out for longing for love and good news. Through your actions, you have complicated a stereotype and a storyline in lovely ways. And I believe your faith is bearing fruit. These two themes, gratitude and connection, turn out to be key principles in today's passage. And I wonder if they might not be more interlaced than even it seems at first. We're nearing the midpoint of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and prior to this, he's done some rehashing, necessary review, but review nonetheless, of the fundamentals of the faith. Paul reminds the people of their Creator's power and their Redeemer's presence, and he writes to them of his own care. And then we arrive at our passage for today, which is full of admonition and exhortation, encouragement and warning. There is something going on in Colossae. It is, of course, a little opaque to us, refracted as it is through 2,000 years of history and translation, but we can glean from the text that there's some kind of debate about teachings, some kind of disagreement about doctrine. We can't be certain what precise false teaching Paul was addressing. Some scholars have speculated that pagan practices had begun to infiltrate this fledgling church the culture of the wider world integrating into this faith. What scholars do seem to agree on is that regardless of the specific contours, someone or someones of influence in Colossae were adding new demands, new rules, new legalistic infrastructure to the faith. And in doing so, they were undermining the centrality of Christ. Regardless of the details, I do think we can glean some of Paul's practical counsel and maybe even find some relevance for our life together today. It's intriguing, some might even say odd, that Paul should identify gratitude as a key antidote to false teaching. And I think that's especially true if you think of gratitude as just a feeling. But if you shift your posture slightly, and perceive of gratitude as a spiritual discipline, as something whose abundance reflects attentiveness and care and thought, then perhaps it begins to make a bit more sense. Because gratitude is not static. Gratitude doesn't just sit there. It moves. Inspired by grace, it inspires grace. It's striking that given the chance to elaborate on what it means to continue to walk in Jesus, the first thing that Paul says is to abound in thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving for the story of how God came to them, came to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. Abound in thanksgiving for the story that keeps us humble and for the story that keeps us true. This is how that story goes. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul writes. As you have been showered with this divine grace. As you've been blessed with this teaching. As you've been lavished with Jesus' love. Abound in thanksgiving. So let your cup of gratitude overflow. This is how that story goes. Rooted in Christ Jesus and built up in him, Paul writes. Rooted, he writes. And maybe it's helpful here to remember that this letter was penned not to an individual, but to a community, a family of faith. Rooted, he writes, and maybe it's not just helpful, but essential to think back to how this letter was originally read, not in silence by one person during a quiet time, but aloud to the many who found themselves around a table, drawn together from diverse origins, pulled into community by a common love. Rooted, he writes, and that makes me think of the trees in a biodiverse forest, sending signals and sharing data and supplying nourishment to one another. Rooted, Paul writes, and I wonder if the people of the Colossian church might have thought of the trees that had to send their roots deep into the arid soil of their region to find water. And maybe you might think of the beech and the maple that inhabited this land before we did anchored not just to the earth but also to one another, their relatively shallow roots, finding their purchase not just in the soil but also by interlacing with those of other trees nearby, securing their support not in solitude but in solidarity, not alone but among their neighbors, sharing nutrients and nurturing one another. Rooted, Paul writes, so that all can draw on the water that gives life. So let your cup of gratitude overflow. This is how that story goes. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Imagine. God embodied in human flesh. God not just above us. God not just lording over us, but God with us. And God among us. God as empathy. God as fellow sojourner. So let your cup of gratitude overflow. And this is how that story goes. In the fullness of the body of Christ, with Christ as our head, you have found your fullness too. Buried with Christ and raised with Christ and beholden to no power of this world because of Christ and triumphant in Christ. He has made you alive. So let your cup of gratitude overflow. This is how that sacred story goes, and it is this incarnational story that will remain with you, this light-filled story that will guide you, this unlikely story that will give you solace and steadiness, this miraculous story that will inspire a sense of holy imagination, this relational story that will nourish your relationships with God and with one another, this otherworldly story that will fill your reserve of hope even as you shake off the condemnations of those who think differently, even as you resist those who might disqualify you or, the, or those who, whom you seek to love, even as you move through a world that's discouraging and full of sorrow, a world that's sometimes harsh and even hateful, let your cup of gratitude overflow. Because gratitude isn't static. Gratitude doesn't just sit there it moves. Inspired by grace, it also inspires grace. Two quick notes, because I don't want you to think that what I'm suggesting or what Paul is suggesting is to pretend that things are better than they actually are, or to indulge in toxic positivity, or to promote cheap grace. First, the kind of gratitude we're discussing this morning is clear-eyed about all the work that remains to be done, all that still must be redeemed but it is a hopeful and a faithful gratitude. It is a hopeful and faithful gratitude that expresses conviction, not arrogant certainty, but humble conviction in the promises of a God who has fulfilled God's covenant promises before and will continue to fulfill them going forward. And it is a hopeful and faithful gratitude that sings of conviction, not arrogant certainty, but humble conviction that God's people are still unfolding into an ever-deeper understanding of what it means to fall into God's embrace and to tell others about that embrace. This hopeful and faithful conviction remembers our ancestors, and it looks to our descendants. It acknowledges the past, and it anticipates the future. Second, a brief but difficult word of caution— we have to be wary about making this counsel from Paul to the Colossian Church another way in which we draw lines between us and them, such that our prayer of gratitude might become some noxious version of that infamous pronouncement. "Thank God I am not like those sinners." We're always at risk of allowing the tenderness of our love to calcify and to cynicism and arrogance. Hard lines and stony spirits. None of us is immune from the temptation of right opinions and pious regulations. None of us is immune from becoming the disqualifier. None of us is immune from the temptation of becoming puffed up by the safeguarding of our own righteous rules and the gatekeeping of our allegedly safe spaces. Even as you express solidarity with those who have suffered from limited welcome and unjust policy, and even as you testify how you have come to understand godly justice, and even as you hold fast to your convictions about the breadth and the depth and the width and the height of God's love, you can, and some might even say should, hold gracious and countercultural space for those with different convictions. Folks who might not now and might not ever think as you do. Folks who, if you're honest, might be similar to past versions of yourselves? Folks who, whatever your doctrinal disagreements, remain equally beloved children of God. In the light of your belovedness, you can do this. How? Not on our own. That's for sure. And perhaps this is where we can remember the gift that the psalmist offers us. The psalmist who defies time and geography to accompany us. The psalmist whose poetry has whispered encouragement to generations of our ancestors. The psalmist whose verse reminds us of the empowering presence of a God who is love. The psalmist who, singing to us from across the millennia, begins like Paul in gratitude. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart, he sings in Psalm 138. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. Do you hear the insistent testimony of belovedness? Do you hear the telling of the sacred story? Present tense, not past, still walking, still seeking, still amidst trouble, still facing the challenge of those who stand in opposition, yet still trusting in the goodness of the Almighty, still centered on the enduring chesed of God, and still expressing gratitude with every single step, Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever, he sings. And I'm not sure if that's a confession of faith or a prayer, a plea or a dare. Maybe it doesn't have to be either, or maybe it can be both and. Maybe for us, it can simply be an invitation. Let God's steadfast love be your lodestar and God's otherworldly grace your heartbeat and let your cup of gratitude overflow. In the name of the one who was and is and is to come, the one who created you in love, redeemed you in love, and accompanies you in love. Amen.